You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. More on what happened with NSA material and allegedly Russian hands. Kaspersky security software is alleged to have been exploited for intelligence service reconnaissance of a contractor machine. Germany cancels a post-Snowden surveillance investigation. A conversation with Timothy H. Edgar about his book, Beyond Snowden, Privacy, Mass Surveillance, and the Struggle to Reform the NSA. And Reality Winner will not be released on bail. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire summary for Friday, October 6, 2017. On Thursday, the Wall Street Journal reported that Russian hackers obtained highly sensitive material from the U.S. National Security Agency. The material is said to be related to both network attack and network defense. It was obtained from a machine belonging to a contractor on which the sensitive information had been placed. It's not known who the contractor was or for which company he or she worked. As we saw yesterday, the story, as it's known so far, indicates that the contractor's machine had Kaspersky security products installed. Kaspersky software has the reputation of conducting very thorough scans of the machines it protects. The company touts this as a feature, not a bug, something that enables its products to provide better protection against novel threats. Eugene Kaspersky put it this way in a recent blog, We aggressively protect our users, and we're proud of it. The breach is said to have occurred in 2015, but wasn't discovered until spring of 2016. NSA veterans say off the record that they're not surprised by the latest incident, and some researchers are beginning tentatively to connect the dots, perhaps seeing early signs of an explanation of the shadow broker's leaks, which began a few weeks after NSA discovered the compromise. Late last year, the Washington Post reported that there was another unknown leaker, a third man after Snowden I and Martin the alleged second, and the Post has indicated that this latest revelation is that third man. Kaspersky's been under a cloud within the U.S. government for the better part of the year. The cloud appeared this spring with FBI discussions about the possible risks the Russian software maker posed, and it boiled up into a storm when the Department of Homeland Security issued Binding Operational Directive 17-01 on the 13th of September. That directive, as DHS described it in their announcement, calls on departments and agencies to identify any use or presence of Kaspersky products on their information systems in the next 30 days, to develop detailed plans to remove and discontinue present and future use of the products in the next 60 days, and at 90 days from the date of this directive, unless directed otherwise by DHS based on new information, to begin to implement the agency plans to discontinue use and remove the products from information systems. Kaspersky and the company's defenders have asked for evidence, and the Kaspersky line has been that the company is an innocent victim caught in the ongoing diplomatic crossfire between Washington and Moscow. 
But even such open-source grounds have seemed to the government and to many observers sufficient grounds for prudent suspicion. The latest development suggests there are indeed other very specific grounds for suspicion of Kaspersky Lab and its products. Kaspersky researchers, coincidentally or not, delivered a major paper on the difficulties of attribution this week. It focused on the way false flag operations are carried out by intelligence services. Russian semi-official media see the outcry against Kaspersky as a case of Western security services carrying water for Kaspersky's non-Russian competitors. Ars Technica wrote today that whatever the outcome of the investigation may be, quote, the accusations most certainly mean the end of Kaspersky as we know it, end quote. Kaspersky has long maintained its innocence of nefarious cooperation with the Russians, and Eugene Kaspersky blogged his outrage at the U.S. Congress having canceled his opportunity to clear his company's name by testifying on Capitol Hill. That cancellation came before these latest revelations. It's possible Kaspersky products may have been subverted without the company's knowledge, and some of the initial reactions to this latest story seem to credit that explanation. As we've noted, Kaspersky products do scan aggressively as part of the protection they're designed to provide. In this latest NSA case, that protection may have been exploited as, in effect, reconnaissance for the Russian FSB, showing them where the good stuff was to be found. German authorities have dropped their post-Snowden investigation of alleged GCHQ and NSA surveillance of German targets, including Chancellor Merkel's phone. We've also noticed an uptick in German security firms touting their made-in-Germany credentials, with not a few of them pointedly adding, unlike Kaspersky. Turning to some other breach news, Forbes reports that in addition to its problem with inadvertently exposed data, Deloitte also had some employees successfully catfished by Iranian operators using a bogus Facebook page. The Iranian catfishing seems to be unconnected with the data exposure. And finally, that other accused NSA leaker, reality winner, is going to remain in jail as she awaits trial. U.S. Magistrate Judge Brian K. Epps said in his ruling denying her bail, quote, by her own words and actions, Winner has painted a disturbing self-portrait of an American with years of national service and access to classified information who hates the United States and desires to damage national security on the same scale as Julian Assange and Edward Snowden. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash AI. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security 
by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Professor Awais Rashid. He heads up the Academic Center of Excellence in Cybersecurity Research at Lancaster University. Uh, welcome back. Um, we wanted to talk today about cybersecurity issues in supply chains. Thank you uh, for having me back. Um, the key thing that I wanted to raise was that we often think of cybersecurity uh, in the context of, of an organization that we want we want to protect. But many uh, threats actually arise from uh, from the supply chain itself. Uh, for instance, in any organization, uh, for example, think of an organization uh, uh, with uh, critical national infrastructure, it will have many complex supply chains with a number of uh, uh, other parties uh, providing software and hardware components, third-party services, there will be distributors involved, there will be transporters involved, uh, engineers and third-party uh, staff coming on site. And all that creates a much more complex environment than, than we normally think of as cybersecurity within the confines of a single organization. The challenge comes is that we, we normally uh, focus our efforts on protecting the network and the infrastructure and the information of the organization in question, which is, of course, very important. But not enough attention is often paid from the threats that arise from the supply chain. And we, we have seen various examples where actually uh, threats arising in the supply chain then actually end up impacting the uh, organization under consideration. How do we deal with this with this kind of issue? I, I think the key thing has to be to think of uh, the supply chain as a socio-technical ecosystem that that includes technologies, uh, but a multitude of organizations as well, and all the uh, the cybersecurity practices of the various actors within the ch- supply chain actually then have an impact on the overall security and resilience of the whole supply chain itself. And in terms of uh, an organization budgeting for these sorts of things, um, I guess it's really a matter of having to look outside of your own organization and uh, make sure that you have the resources to be able to properly vet everyone in your supply chain, yes? Uh, yes, I think it's, it's a, a resourcing question, but also it's a risk thinking question. So uh, at a strategic level, when uh, decisions are being made about particular uh, organizations acting, uh, coming as part of the supply chain uh, to, you, to your organization, you have to ask the question, and not only just what kind of security certification or compliances do they have, for example, things like ISO 27001, but what are their actual security practices? And, and uh, would those security practices have an impact on to your organization. So let's take Stuxnet as an example uh, of this. We've actually been looking at this in uh, collaboration with a company in the UK called Netitude, and we've been looking at how the supply chain issues arise in critical infrastructure. And and if you look at Stuxnet as an example, the uh, worm spread through potentially infected USBs or or, uh, machines being carried into the nuclear power plant by uh, third-party engineers. And that's the kind of threat that arises. And the kind of practices at organization uh, in the supply chain have an impact on what happens to you. Interesting stuff to look out for. Awais Rashid, thanks for joining us.
Struggling to secure on-prem apps with modern identity? Don't worry, you're not alone. Join industry leaders from Fortune 500 organizations to secure your apps on any cloud with any IDP, regardless of your environment's complexity. Meet Strata's identity orchestration platform, Mavericks. Say goodbye to the headaches of app refactoring and legacy tech debt. With identity orchestration, you can modernize legacy apps to use MFA or passwordless authentication in a few weeks, migrate from one IDP to another, and so much more without changing the app. No matter your IAM use case, Strata extends the value of your current identity investments. And the best part? You can try it for free today. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire to share your biggest identity challenge, and they'll hook you up with a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Don't miss out. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire. That's strata.io slash cyberwire. My guest today is Timothy H. Edgar. He's the academic director at Brown University's Executive Cybersecurity Program and author of the book Beyond Snowden, Privacy, Mass Surveillance, and the Struggle to Reform the NSA. Mr. Edgar was a civil rights lawyer with the ACLU and then a civil liberties protection officer for the Director of National Intelligence under Presidents Bush and Obama. To say it was a culture shock would be a bit of an understatement. When I went into the government was at the end of the George W. Bush administration, really the uh, middle of the second term. And at that time, there was enormous tension between the national security establishment and the privacy and civil liberties community. There's always some tension, but this was really a a time when the government was seen as overreaching in its surveillance programs and its counterterrorism programs. Um, But there was an opportunity there to make a difference by going to a new office, a privacy office inside the head of the intelligence community. That's the director of national intelligence. Um, And so I kind of took a big gulp and decided to make that leap and go inside. And I still remember kind of the shocked expressions on some people's faces when they asked me where I had worked and you know, they were expecting to hear, oh, I was at the FBI or I was at the CIA or I was at the NSA, which is what most of my colleagues would have said. And I said, well, I was at the ACLU uh, and we were actually fighting you guys on a number of these programs. And now I'm here to you know, see how they work in detail and see if I can suggest any kinds of safeguards or improvements Um, in these uh, NSA surveillance programs and other collection programs to protect privacy better. Uh, There's a point you make in the book about the the overall professionalism of people inside the NSA, that they take their work very seriously and they take the rule of law very seriously. I, I think that's a part of the story that not many people hear much about. I think that's right. And um, one reason I wrote the book is to provide people with a glimpse inside Uh, both camps, and to understand that it's possible to have very dedicated intelligence professionals doing their job and largely adhering to the law and still have a massive problem when it comes to privacy uh, and mass surveillance. And it's because of the law being out of date and because of the pressure that's put on an intelligence community um, to always get all the data that policymakers want to stop every terrorist attack, 
to get every valuable piece of intelligence from overseas. Um, and you put people in that position, and this is somewhat inevitable. And, and one of the things I, I give a lot of credit to Edward Snowden for in the book, and he's not a popular figure among my former colleagues in the intelligence community, but I give him a lot of credit for opening up that conversation um, so that we can actually reform some of these programs. And we have, uh, in the past four years, adopted major reforms as a result of the Snowden revelations. I don't think they go far enough. Uh, but we have had an opportunity to talk about, you know, privacy rights for foreigners. We've never done that before. Uh, to talk about much more transparent uh, way of dealing with documents like opinions from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. We've released a lot of those. Um, and we've reformed some of our domestic bulk collection programs. Congress had a debate about that in 2015. Transparency really helps uh, to square that circle so that the dedicated intelligence professionals that are working for the NSA and these other agencies can do their job under the law, but those laws can actually protect our privacy better than they do now. What do you hope people take away from the book? Well, I hope they understand that although we have built these massive mass surveillance programs, uh, we are not stuck with either throwing up our hands and accepting that loss of privacy um, or just dismantling them all and deciding that that's the price of a free society, uh, that we can have a system of surveillance that protects privacy. Uh, but that in order to do that, we really need to seriously overhaul the way in which we do oversight of these intelligence programs, the checks and balances we have for them, the laws that apply to them. And we did this before, back in the 1970s, um, but now it's 2017, and we need to do it again, and we need to do it in a way that reflects our mass surveillance age, our digital age, and especially our global age. Uh, and that's going to mean doing a lot of things a little bit differently. So I've laid out a specific set of recommendations for reform, but I think beyond those specific changes we can make, the main point is a hopeful one. The main message is a message that says, we actually can reform these surveillance programs in order to make them more protective of privacy. We've done it in the past. Um, we've started to do it because of the Snowden revelations, but we've got a lot of more work to do. That's author Timothy H. Edgar. The book is Beyond Snowden, Privacy, Mass Surveillance, and the Struggle to Reform the NSA. And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K Cyberwire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.